It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. The Daily Space for today, Thursday, May 14, 2020. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Gay, and I am here to put science in your brain. Today, we will be joined by PSI's own Dr. Katherine Johnson, one of the researchers in a recent study of Mars magnetic field. Using Mars Maven data, this team found indications that Mars had a magnetic field as recently as 3.7 billion years ago. Dr. Johnson's work addresses a myriad of global data sets that allow her to probe the internal structure of other worlds, all while living here right on Earth. Remote sensing is an awesome thing. Before we get to the interview, however, let's take a look at the news. Today's top story looks at an area of astronomy that rarely makes headlines, pulsating variable stars. As some of you may know, I started my research career looking first at T-Tories and radio and then moved back to optical astronomy with Cepheids and R.R. Lares. In grad school, I switched to extragalactic astronomy because I was told that pulsating variables were essentially a solved problem, and they're just wouldn't be funding or jobs doing research that I really enjoyed. Here's the thing, though. Stars have long been underappreciated and labeled solved problems by folks that study things that look more complicated on the outside. Folks often fail to realize just how complex stars can be on the inside. As more and more researchers have to look at stars to find planets, the messiness of stars is starting to get more attention, and I am so here for it. Variable stars come in lots of kinds. Some flare up randomly, some darken suddenly. Pulsating variable stars are stars that have just the right balance or lack of balance of gravity, temperature, and energy generation that as light pushes outward, it sometimes gets stolen by the star's outer atmosphere, unable to escape thanks to effects like ionization and changes in opacity. The photons increase in pressure until they can push the star into becoming a bigger star. This changes the temperature and the behavior of the outer star, making it possible for photons to fly free again, which in turn pulls the star, which subsequently collapses down smaller. We see this effect as stars visibly change in brightness and color. And for many stars, these changes can be seen without a telescope or binoculars. All you need is your eye and a clear, darkish sky. One of the favorite targets of backyard astronomers is delta scuti stars. These young stars have chaotic-looking brightness changes that reflect rapid rotation and pulsations we haven't been able to understand, at least until now. Astronomers using the TESS and Kepler exoplanet observatories, along with ground-based telescopes, have found that there are two different classes of delta scuti stars that can be sorted. One set of stars behaves in 
sensible waves with the entire surface of the star moving in and out in concert. The other set is harder to imagine. Different parts of the star actually pulsate out of phase with each other, with different quadrants alternatingly going in and out. This is ridiculously hard to sort when the stars are rotating rapidly. The amount we see of the brightest parts is a function of which quadrants are pulsing and which of those pulsing quadrants are facing us. And the facing us part is changing rapidly. But one team, led by Tim Betting, has just published a paper in the journal Nature that shows that ridiculously hard is not the same as impossible. They have come up with solutions. And just like the harmonics of a horn tell us the shape of the horn, and seismic waves through the Earth tell us the structure of our planet, these astro-seismic waves tell us the shapes inside the stars. These new findings are already allowing researchers to use these young pulsating objects to determine the age of their surroundings, including to measure the age of a stream of stars orbiting our Milky Way. Now, pressures of all kinds affect the periodic effects we see in our sky. Stars pulsate, galaxies echo, and even small moons can erupt when their internal pressure gets too great. We know from clear images of the moon Enceladus, taken by the Cassini mission, that this tidally tortured moon erupts organic-rich geysers into space. The question has been, do we have inarguable evidence to prove the same is happening at Jupiter's moon Europa? There have been hints in Hubble images and data from Galileo that can be interpreted as geyser plumes, but nothing definitive. And we still don't have anything I'd label as definite. But we do have one more computer model saying, yeah, there's got to be geysers. Looking at data from Galileo's energetic particles detector from the spacecraft during the same time period when other instruments detected behavior consistent with a geyser, a team led by Hans Hybrids found fewer photons than expected. And the only way they can explain this with their models is if they include a geyser. These teams are in many ways trying to say, yes, <laughs> there is a geyser, by looking at a shadow in the data. So far, nothing else fits the gap we're seeing. When it someday makes its way toward Jupiter, the Europa Clipper mission will be able to provide a final answer on geysers or not. Until then, unfortunately, Juno just doesn't have the right setup. So we're left with local detectors or old data and models to try and figure out what is going on. It's a start, though, and it's a start that points to there being a geyser. This work appears in the Geophysical Research Letters. The distances to these interesting worlds can be hugely frustrating. And the brief time that spacecraft spend getting us data is never long enough. At Jupiter, Galileo gave us years and gigabytes of information. 
at Pluto, New Horizons had moments. But sometimes moments are enough to get just the right info to start something awesome. New Horizons looked back at Pluto after its flyby and discovered the backlit planet haloed by illuminated haze. Sadly, that image set was New Horizons' only chance to explore this phenomena. Now, Earth-bound observers have taken to the sky with the Sophia Airborne Observatory to study this haze with infrared and visible light detectors. While they can't get stunning imagery, they can study Pluto in special moments when Pluto passes in front of a star and its atmosphere gets backlit. This has added to New Horizons data and given us data over time. Predictions had been that Pluto's atmosphere would collapse out as Pluto moved farther from the sun. But the rate at which that is happening wasn't matching pre-New Horizon models. What New Horizons saw was a surprise. With the new data and continued observations from Sophia, this team has proven that particles in Pluto's atmosphere are extremely small and able to stay lofted longer, allowing the haze to linger. This new work appears in the journal Icarus. Unfortunately, we can't linger on Pluto. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Dr. Katherine Johnson to talk Mars, magnetic fields, and pursuit of understanding of the red planet's evolution. This interview was recorded earlier today, live on twitch.tv slash CosmoQuestX. How the surface of Pluto is turning into an atmosphere and the collapsing back down to the surface of Pluto. Now, we only had this one chance with New Horizons to get this one set of images as New Horizons left this system. But now Earthbound observers have taken to the sky with the Sophia Airborne Observatory to take advantage of special moments in Pluto's orbit when from the perspective of us here on Earth, Pluto passes directly in front of a distant star. Now, in these moments when Pluto passes in front of the star, that starlight can be seen shining through Pluto's atmosphere, giving us additional opportunities to study Pluto's haze. And now researchers who've been doing this work have published a new paper in the journal Icarus that is saying the reason that this haze continues to linger longer than we ever expected. And this was one of New Horizons' awesome findings. They didn't know how much atmosphere they'd see, and they saw a whole lot more than they expected. This team was let out of the SETI Institute. Um, they're able to say that the reason this haze is able to linger is it's much smaller than we previously thought. And these tiny, tiny particles, once lofted, take longer to settle back down. This is something a lot of us have experienced before. You toss a bunch of gravel up, it's just going to come straight back down. You clap chalkboard erasers and that fine particulate stays suspended. Well, this haze is essentially a suspended atmosphere that takes time to settle back down. Now, unfortunately, unlike the haze, we can't linger at Pluto. We have an interview to get to. 
In just a moment, I am going to bring on Dr. Katherine Johnson, and we're going to continue our explorations of the solar system as we turn to Mars and the recent work that the team she's part of has done using MAVEN data to, well, start to figure out when did Mars have an active magnetic field, the kind of magnetic field that just might have made it a little bit easier for an atmosphere and all the things an atmosphere allows to have existed on Mars. I am now joined with uh, Dr. Katherine Johnson, someone I am proud to share the Planetary Science Institute label with, and she also uh, is at the University of British Columbia, which is oddly where my husband went to university. So it's a very small world, and welcome to our show. How are you doing today? Thank you very well. Now, we we highlighted uh, your recent research paper a couple of weeks ago here on the show. And um, I'd love it, though, if we could hear about it in your own words. What did you do to, well, probe Mars' magnetic field? Sure. Well, as you know, uh, Mars doesn't have a magnetic field today. It doesn't have a global magnetic field like we do on the Earth. Um, But in the late 1990s, the Mars Global Survey, a spacecraft, was in orbit around Mars. And that spacecraft, during its early aerobraking phase, when it was coming in and using Mars's atmosphere to bring it into a more circular orbit, that spacecraft actually detected little signals of magnetic fields. And as people put the picture together from Mars Global Survey, what they saw was that there were magnetic fields and over some parts of the planet, but not others. And much weaker than the Earth's field um, and clearly sort of associated with some geological regions. And so the big conclusion from that was that some of the rocks on Mars are magnetized today. They hold magnetization today. They're like little permanent magnets. And the way that they got magnetized was in an ancient magnetic field. But one of the big questions has always been, uh, we know that this field was ancient, but how ancient? Was it done by the time there were big impacts on the surface that created these basins, or did it come afterwards? And both ideas have been around for a while. Um, And so what we did was we went back and uh, looked at some more recent data from the MAVEN spacecraft, which is now in orbit around Mars. So Mars Global Surveyor is no longer in orbit around Mars. Then there was a hiatus for uh, over a decade. And then uh, Mars um, uh, MAVEN has been in orbit around Mars since 2014. And it has some parts of its orbit that fly closer to the surface of the planet than Mars Global Surveyor did. Still a long way away, still over 100 kilometers away. Um, But... Uh, we used some of these data to try to really address this question of when did the magnetic field on Mars actually, when was it present and when did it switch off? And, and, and magnetic fields, we often talk about them and how important they are for protecting the the atmosphere of the world, allowing uh, basically the sun's wind to get more deflected mm-hmm. and not having those high impact charged particles slowly stripping away the atmosphere. But that magnetic field is the side effect of Mars still being liquidy on the inside. 
And so this also gets at cooling rates. Now, can, can you give us some insights on what the magnetic field tells us about the inside of the world? Right. So if you have a magnetic field at some point in a planet's history, so now we're talking about a global field, not the field that Mars has today from these magnetized rocks. So the field that it had when the rocks became magnetized, um, if a planet has a field like that, you know, with a North Pole and a South Pole magnetic pole like we do on the Earth, it tells you that um, that planet, if it's a rocky planet like Mars or Venus or the Earth, the Moon, Mercury, it tells you that the deep interior of that planet that we know is made of metal, that that's still liquid and moving around quickly enough that it can generate a magnetic field. So it's liquid metal, which is a conductor. And so as that conductor moves around, it generates a, a magnetic field. And um, and for that to happen, the planet has to be cooling relatively rapidly. And so for many planets, this only happens early in their history, particularly for smaller planets. We think this is true, um, although pretty much in our solar system, every planet is a puzzle in that regard. Um, Mercury small still has a feel. What we found for Mars was that um, with the MAVEN data is that there was evidence for a magnetic field, we, we found sort of two tide points, one much earlier than people had thought previously, right at the very beginnings of Mars's history. We think it had a magnetic field. Um, and then one tide point where we found rocks that are younger than people thought uh, was typical of the magnetic field persisting. Um, those are about still old for us, 3.7 billion years old, um, but suggests that Mars had a magnetic field then. And this ties to your comment about atmospheres, right? Um, previously, people thought that Mars's global magnetic field switched off probably before the big basins formed. And most of those formed before the evidence for liquid water and, and an atmosphere on the surface. And so this question of what did the magnetic field and the atmosphere know about each other? Did they have anything to do with each other when one was present and uh, the other was not? Um, previously, it seemed like the atmosphere just came after the magnetic field, this thicker atmosphere. What our results show is that actually there was a magnetic field present at least after uh, these these. Uh, big evidences for water on the surface of Mars. And so this is really interesting because it opens up this question again as was there a magnetic field there that was helping protect Mars's atmosphere? How much those magnetic fields are needed to protect an atmosphere is a huge open question in planetary science. So, so let's try and unpack a lot of this because there's so much cool stuff going on. So pretty much early, early, early in our solar system, everything was a giant pile of goo or gas surrounding a pile of goo. So we had a liquid core to Mercury, a liquid core to Earth. We still got it. Um, and, and Mars early on was a hotter world. It had that liquid metallic core. It was generating a magnetic field. And then over time, like a bunch of different pastries set on the counter, things cooled at different rates depending on their composition and their size. So just like a big old hot pudding will take longer to cool than a little tiny dried out muffin. Well, Earth, we're still hot and Mars, well, 
we don't know Mars well enough to know exactly when it cooled, but we know it cooled before us. Now, not all rocks formed on a world capture magnetic fields. Is is that a fair assessment? That's right. So I saw some interesting things on the chat, actually. Yeah. So about the cooling, right? Um, so, so in general, smaller planets, even if they have the same amount of, there was a great question here about radioactivity. Is Mars cooler today because it has less radioactivity? And the answer is probably not that. Smaller planets cool more quickly um, because they have more surface area relative to their volume, right? So, so they'll tend to cool more quickly. So in general, everything else being equal, and if cooling is the only thing that makes a magnetic field, global magnetic field, then they'll tend to have cooled more quickly, perhaps switched off their magnetic field earlier. But there's another thing that helps you have a magnetic field, and that's as a planet cools, that liquid core solidifies, and when it solidifies, so just like it takes energy to melt something, yeah. when something cools and solidifies, it releases energy. And so the solidification of that core from the inside out actually can help you drive a dynamo because it's releasing heat. And it also releases a little bit of it's not exactly the liquid core isn't exactly pure iron. It's got some light stuff. And when it freezes, the light stuff is concentrated in the liquid. So, so there are ways to kind of help this evolution through time. And then what you see on the surface today, your question was about not all rocks record right. magnetic fields. So what you see today is basically the record of what rocks formed during the period that you had a magnetic field and were those rocks, did they have iron minerals in them, right? So different compositions of rocks will be different recorders of the same field. And so these are the things that um, when we look at, at satellite data and we try to decide, does this area have magnetic fields on the surface of Mars? Does this area not, or it does, but it's different. Is it different because the rocks are different or is it different because the surfaces are a different age and recording a different time? And so, so we try to entangle, disentangle all of these things. And, and so there's this complicated struggle of trying to figure out if this particular geological region that we're looking at, and we can figure out how old this region is versus that region by counting craters, because more or less the universe is falling, was, is throwing rocks at Mars at a known rate ish. Mm -hmm. And and so you look and you count how many craters are in one place. You count how many craters are in another place. You accept the fact that wind is eroding things, which is confusing. And you more or less know this is older than this. Mm -hmm. And when you look at one region and you do or you don't find a magnetic field, you ask yourself, is it because the rocks aren't any good for solving this problem or is it because the magnetic field turned off? So you have to look at lots and lots of regions that are mm -hmm. the same age to try and figure this out. Yep, that's right. And then there's like even one more kind of complication to this. And this is where our study came in, yeah. which is you can identify regions that have magnetic fields or magnetized rocks. Um, and you know something about their ages, but you know about the age of the surface. Yes. And the rocks that are magnetized 
might be near the surface or they might be quite deep beneath the surface surface. So for any of you who've been to like Hawaii or anywhere with big like cliffs and layers of rocks, the rocks at the top will be a very different age often from the ones at the bottom. And so if all I know is the age of the one of the top, but the one at the bottom is the one that's magnetized, right? Then then my conclusions can be wrong because I put the wrong age with with that rock. And so one of the things that uh, we did in this study was we were able to find a place where we know it's the rocks that are near the surface that are magnetized. How, how do you know that? And the reason that we know that is it's a, it's a big, big lava flow. Um, and you can see that the magnetic field signal is... Uh, in the same place that the lava flow is, that still doesn't tell you exactly. It still could be just fortuitous and beneath the surface. But what we see is in the middle of that lava flow, there's a very, very young, fresh crater. And um, and we know that that crater is so fresh that it's unlikely that the magnetic field was on when that crater formed. Nobody would think Mars had a magnetic field that long because we don't see it over any other really, really young terrain like yeah. that. So that crater is very young um, and it's punched a hole to the bottom of that lava flow. In fact, we can see that it goes all the way through to the bottom, like a kilometer or so, just actually more like a mile to the bottom of this uh, big set of lava flows. And associated with that crater is basically a dip in the magnetic field, a big dip, almost like completely gone over this, over this crater. And so we basically know that this this lava flow is magnetized, is correlated, the magnetization is correlated with the flow, and there's a hole in the middle of it where this crater is present. So we can say that it's, it's almost certainly that set of flows that are near the surface, whose age we know, versus being something much deeper. And, and that is just one of those lucky finds. And, and I have to ask... How did you guys realize this this one crater mm-hmm. on this entire world is the key to figuring this out? Who did, do you know within the team who it was that initially discovered this young crater? So, so this was the work of my um, postdoc, who's uh-huh. the first author on this paper, and myself. And uh, the way we went about it was we basically. Um, we basically looked at MAVEN data and we said, where are there signals in MAVEN data that we didn't see them in Mars Global Surveyor already? Yeah. And so that takes out a big part of the planet because a big part of the planet we knew about. And then we said, let's look for places where we know that there are, um, they, we know that there are flows whose age we know or volcanoes, but flows are a little easier to talk about for reasons that are just kind of complicated and boring. But um, (laughs) so we looked for, so we looked for regions that um, would be interesting in terms of being younger than people had thought about the magnet. Many people have thought about the magnetic field before and, and where we already saw new signals. And then we just, we looked, we looked at everything just like, when you do weeding in your garden, yeah, you gradually go through everywhere, right? And and along the way, you know, maybe there is a plant that you didn't know was there and isn't a weed, right? <laughs> so so we looked, and and 
that's the thing about science that our our community largely discovered while uh, helping the OSIRIS-REx team map out uh, Bennu. A whole lot of science is systematically looking at a whole lot of things that look absolutely identical or at least variations on a single boring theme. But as you look, you'll eventually find that one thing that makes all the difference in how you understand a world. Now, with what you guys did, one of the things that I picked up in the research paper was there, there's other regions that had been dated as being slightly older and didn't mm-hmm. seem to have magnetic fields. Um, can you talk about this a little bit? What, what is this telling right. us? Right. So we found, you know, this one, um, this one evidence for very ancient, right at the beginning of Mars's history, as you said, very ancient yeah. fields. And then other people, you know, the, the big results from Mars Global Surveyor showed that there was a magnetic field after that even. Yeah. So we have the earliest one, then this time period from about 4.3 to 4.1 billion years ago. And then the argument has always been that when you look at craters, big craters, big impact basins, um, in particular, sort of two or three of them over the surface of the planet of Mars, they don't have magnetic fields in their interior. And their ages are all in the sort of 3.9-ish billion years ago. And then we have this this time after that, this young flow, where we see... So that and the interpretation has always been that those big impact basins formed when Mars didn't have a global field. When a basin, when an impactor hits the surface, everything inside the basin is ejected and melted. And then as it cooled back down again, if there was a magnetic field, a global field, the argument is always that those rocks would record the global field. Yeah. So the absence of a magnetic field over those basins was taken as meaning that they formed when there was no global field because the rocks cooled in the absence of a field, so they're not magnetized. And so the question is, how can you have this time before and the time after and nothing in between? Right. Magnetic fields can switch on and off, so that's one possibility, but it has to be very fortuitous, just timed exactly right, right, with the basins. So one of the things that we suggest in this paper is really based on our knowledge from the Earth and also what we discovered in the paper, which is that much of the magnetization is carried in rocks in the crust, what we call the crust of the Earth, so sort of the top, 10 to 5 to 50 kilometers. Right. Um, when these big basins formed, they make holes that are that deep. Yes. Right. So they basically can remove all, almost all of the crust in that region. On the earth, the rocks that lie beneath the crust in the mantle, those are actually much, much less magnetic. And we have meteorites from Mars that have compositions of sort of Martian crust and also compositions that we think are Martian mantle-like. The ones that are more mantle-like are much less magnetic. And this is a composition difference. This this yes. isn't a, so I will be, I won't be. be. It's just, they're made of different this, stuff. So it could just be that when you make these basins, you remove all the stuff that can be magnetized and you still have a magnetic field present 
but the rocks that are left, the ones that are typically deeper, that those can't be magnetized or they're magnetized so weakly that even at these satellite altitudes, we can't see it. So we could test this by flying much closer to the surface with helicopters or planes or balloons, right? That would be a way to test it. And I, I don't think that Perseverance's little helicopter is, is going to be able to give us this information, but mm-hmm. we can dream of future missions. But for now, this is allowing us to start to develop a tantalizing timeline for the red planet where where we're looking at how does the magnetic field's presence or lack thereof compare with that time when during and after the um, great heavy bombardment, there was liquid carried to Mars, just like there was liquid carried to Earth. And Mars, like Earth, had oceans and not like Earth, its atmosphere was much smaller and sadder. Probably not sad, it lacked emotions, but much smaller. Um, If that magnetic field was there at the same time, how does that change how we model the atmosphere that could have been there? Right, so if Mars had a... So you're talking about if there was a magnetic field present at the time there was an atmosphere. Yeah. Right. Um, This is actually one of the things that people have been looking at, uh, both with um, MAVEN data. One of the big, actually, the big objective of the MAVEN mission is to understand how Mars is losing its atmosphere today. Yeah. Right. What are the rates? How, where does the atmosphere escape? you know, how fast, under what conditions, um, to try to actually understand even just today to go back in time. Um, But then, of course, if you go back in time, we don't, you know, we don't have measurements of atmosphere loss directly, right? So one of the ways we can look at that is through numerical models. And people have actually, quite recently, there was a paper uh, where people looked at numerical simulations of atmospheric loss on Mars with a magnetic field and then seeing a global field and then seeing as you decrease the strength of that global field, at what point does the atmosphere start being lost, right? Um, So there are sort of different ways that people go about trying to understand this, but um, one of the one of the things that's, that I, I, I think clear is that strong global magnetic fields do help. You know, whether they're required to protect an atmosphere is a different question, but they certainly help. And so if you had an atmosphere present during this period of water on the surface, it certainly would help keep that atmosphere there for a little bit longer. I mean, it's just a huge set of questions from Mars is, you know, why did it have these diff- this different climate and how was the atmosphere then lost, right? And and so this starts to become more a case, it sounds like, of time scales where, yeah. sure, it can have an atmosphere and not have a magnetic field. Mm-hmm. But if the magnetic field is present, it, it slows the erosion process of that atmosphere. Right. As long as that magnetic field is is strong enough, sufficiently strong. It turns out in some, what people are starting to learn is in some of these simulations, if the planet has a magnetic field, a global one, 
but it's actually quite weak, um, much weaker than the Earth's today, then in fact, the presence of the weak field can facilitate atmospheric loss. So it's oh. all sorts of things that we don't know, but certainly a strong field, which is what we think Mars probably had at the time it had one. You know, our work suggests it would have been Earth-like from the magnetizations of the rocks. Um, that would definitely help. So is is there a name for this phenomenon the atmosphere is asking of of the magnetic field and the atmosphere interplaying to protect or it appears uh accelerate the loss of atmosphere no that's a, it's a great question i see that question on the on the chat is there a name for the loss of the atmosphere due to the loss of the magnetic field does something limit you know uh, no we don't have a name for it because we actually because we really don't understand the details of it well enough right you know how strong is it just the strength of the field overall? If you turn it down below a certain number, do you lose an atmosphere? Or more likely, it's probably related to a combination, the balance of the strength of the magnetic field and how thick the atmosphere is, because an atmosphere helps protect itself. Venus is a great example, right? So um, so we don't have names for it because we're still figuring out the physical mechanism. See, this is how planetary scientists differ from us astronomers, because the second we discover something we don't understand, that's when we name it. <laughs> um, I, I appreciate that difference. Now, we've had a bunch of, of questions that I have to admit I haven't thought about with my Mars. So here on Earth, we, we see, particularly in the mid-ocean trenches, the, the rocks show flipping magnetic fields over time. Mm -hmm. Do we have the capacity to look for similar polarity changes on Mars? It's very difficult to see that from orbit. Okay. You know, from a satellite uh, from satellite orbits, if, if all we had on the Earth was satellite data, yeah. we know this, right? Um, we know it because we were able to get much closer uh, to the surface. The definitive way to know that is to have rock samples from the surface. Uh -huh. The definitive way to know about timing is to have rock samples from the surface that you can measure in the lab on the Earth. You have to do it. You, you can't really do it in situ with a rover um, because you need to actually be able to do some experiments to be sure that that magnetization is an ancient one. And then to get an age of that rock, this is what we do on the earth, right? We take samples, we go to places like Hawaii and take drill cores. Yeah. We know which ways the rocks are oriented and then we can measure their magnetization in the lab we measure their age and we know how the rock was oriented and that the cliff section isn't all collapsed. Or, right. Right. No. So we know that that's in, we call it in place. Um, and so then we can see is the direction flipping. So that's really the best way. Um, we can, we can do uh, a little bit better than that. We could, we could get some ideas of that with being just closer to the surface. Um, but the definitive record comes from actually looking at rocks and, and measuring rocks. And this isn't a matter of we have to have humans on Mars. It's an issue of we need to be able to expend a whole lot more energy than our little tiny happy rovers are able to do. Our rovers just don't have the... Uh, 
basically the wattage to drill core samples. And since they don't have the wattage, we don't even bother to build the instrumentation. It takes a lot of machinery to drill the samples. And then, of course, the labs that we use take up a whole lot more space than what fits on our rovers. So we could do it robotically. The oil companies have a lot of tech we could steal, but we can't do it with the size and the size restrictions of our current rovers and the energy restrictions of our current rovers. Um, But humans would be nice. Humans would be nice. Um, now, in looking at at Mars, when you are finding these vestigial, vestigial um, magnetic fields, you you mentioned finding it in a lava flow. Um, what other kinds of places do we look, and what does that tell us? about the internal structures that were spitting out this can form magnetic, um, can form natural magnets material that was coming out onto the surface. We look at uh, rocks in different places, right? With different, where we think, you know, maybe based on what we see from uh, spectroscopic data from satellites, which tells us something about composition, where we think rocks might have different compositions. So we try to look at uh, the record of ancient magnetism in different places to try to understand uh, something about at least the iron composition of the rock. Uh, one of the things that we were able to do in this study, which was really helpful, was because, you know, that little crater is, is really key to the yes. whole story. That little crater, because it penetrates to the bottom of this lava flow, right? Uh, we know how thick the layer is that carries the magnetization. And so when we measure a magnetic field over this layer, all you know is basically about the com- combined effects of the thickness of the layer, um, what kinds of minerals, how strong the, the magnetic minerals are and how much of them is present, right? And by knowing the thickness of the, that layer, we've taken out one of those variables, right? So now we can say we get this magnetic field. We know what the thickness of the layer is. So the two things that, are, that we don't know that are just trading off with each other, what is the magnetic mineralogy how how magnetizable is this rock and how much magnetizable stuff is there but because we know even the combination of those two things we can compare that number that combines those two things with the same number the magnetization of rocks on the earth of rocks with what we think might be similar compositions so this lava flow is what we call a pyroclastic uh, basaltic lava flow. So we know something, the basalt is something about its composition and the pyroclastic is something about the way it's in which it was erupted. So we can compare that magnetization with similar rocks on the earth. And in fact, it's very similar to many of the rocks that we see on the earth. And so we can start to say more about the mineralogy, at least in that place, it may well be like some of the pyroclastic basaltic lava flows that we see 
on the earth. And furthermore, because it's like that, very much like that, then probably the strength of the field in which that rock was magnetized was similar to that of the earth today. So so I just want to pause for a moment. Pyroclastic basaltic lava flow. Yes. I understood the last two words. And because I've gone to a whole lot of LPFCs, I understood the first few, but I'm not sure everyone did. Can can you break that down? Right. So, so I was, I was trying to get there a little bit in terms of the first one, pyroclastic actually usually refers to a very violent eruption. Yeah. Um, You know, one that would have erupted uh, kind of a mix of lava flow material, what we call actually bombs, just big blocks of rocks, ash. It can be ash. Is this the recent tragic New Zealand eruption? Yes, that's a pyroclastic, pyroclastic flows. And so the pyroclastic is about basically the sort of the type of eruption that's happening. Um, The basaltic inference comes from spectroscopic work, other people's work over the area. That's the composition part. And basalts are basically, by basaltic, we mean something like you would see in Hawaii, in the cliffs in Hawaii, like you would see in the Snake River Plain. You know, these kinds of uh, uh, magnetic mineralogies that you see in big lava flows on the earth. And, And in those big lava flows on the earth, we know what kinds of iron minerals are present. So it helps us with understanding the iron mineralogy, at least in that place. On, on Mars. Now, the magnetic fields that you're talking about here, we're, we're all of us generally used to the magnets that we stick on our refrigerator, the mm-hmm. magnets that we encounter if we take apart speakers. But if I go to Hawaii and I start picking up lava rock, I can't stick it to the front of my refrigerator. Right. So how strong does the magnetic field need to be for you to be able to detect it? Are you talking about super tiny magnetic fields? Uh, they're, they're really quite small. So by comparison, if you were to just take a, a mi- instrument that measures the magnetic field strength on the Earth, if yeah. you were, so, you know, I'm in San Diego, and if you were to take it outside in San Diego or low latitudes on the earth, it would measure a magnetic field that's somewhere between 30 and 40,000 nanoteslas. That's our units. Okay. Use here. Um, Most of that is about the global field of the earth. So if you were to do the same thing in Hawaii, you'd get some similar number. If you were to subtract the global field, the leftover signal would be a few hundred to a few thousand nanoteslas. So it's a few percent to 10% of the global field. That's the field from the rocks themselves, right? right? Um, if you, uh, and, and so if you were to look on Mars, the strongest place, the, the flow that we looked at, it would be similar on Mars. Um, some other places in the Southern Hemisphere have magnetic fields from the rocks that are much stronger than on the Earth, maybe 10 times stronger. But we don't yet know whether that's because there's just more magnetizable stuff there or because the magnetization itself is stronger, right? Is it is it a rock layer that's sort of the same thickness as on the Earth typically, yeah. um, but more strongly magnetized or is there more rock? 
And and this and this has been a question for us in understanding. And and this is exactly what I wanted to get at is we don't know if on Mars the individual magnetic magnetic field preserving rocks are those Hawaii like lava rocks that you absolutely cannot stick on your refrigerator. Or are they more like the naturally occurring magnetic rocks that people buy to put in their sewing mm-hmm. kits to pick up needles? And it's the en masse effect of having so much of this material that allows Maven to detect things. Is is this accurate? Is it's everything added up that creates the magnetic field? Yeah, that's right. It's it's it could be just like on the Earth, you know, just like Hawaii type flows, and there's more of it in the places where the magnetizations are stronger. There's more of it, um, and or it could be rocks in, that in some places are quite different, like you described. Um, what enables MAVEN or in the past Mars Global Surveyor to see those magnetic fields is that they're strong enough, but they also exist over a present over a big enough spatial area. So even if they were sort of Hawaii-like or even 10 times stronger than Hawaii, but they only exist in a patch that's the size of well, anybody who lives in a city, their backyard, <laughs> maybe yeah. not people yeah. in the countryside with acres and acres. But if it's a very small area, then you won't see it because you're too far away. Yeah. And and so so it, it's the combination of having something that is fairly strong anyway, at least Earth-like in terms of the rocks, but that there are big areas that are actually magnetized. And... And it's really all of these different things. This this is effectively the reason we learn calculus is to integrate over the volume of the magnetic field mater- generating material. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, and how- also, to, also to be able to solve, you know, to look at our bank accounts. <laughs> well, I, if you're using calculus to do your bank account, I'm glad I don't have your bank account. Um, mine, luckily, I can handle with Excel. Not that I do. I handle it with Google Slides because I'm cheap. But uh, going back to magnetic fields, Hanny's looking at the very early moments of when this might have all started. Does does the planet have to have hit the point where it started to differentiate in the cooling blob before you get the magnetic field? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Traditionally, that's been our thinking. I, I, I think there are people starting to think about, could you have a magnetic field present when you had when the planet hadn't differentiated, so hadn't separated the metal part, hadn't fallen towards the center to form a metal core? So if you have a planet that is, you know, this sort of mixture of molten, not molten rock and a metal altogether, could you actually generate a magnetic field in that? It's more difficult because one of the things that having just a, a, a differentiated planet and a metal core helps with is that that metal is all in the same place and it can move in a way that's very, it can flow in this big, relatively big volume, yeah. right? And it's the large scale flow that's set up that gives you a large scale global field 
Um, so it might be that planets had magnetic fields even before they had fully differentiated. It's a great question to bring up. Um, but I think, you know, all of our current understanding is really about planets that have already differentiated and their fields. And the frustration is that the surface of worlds from those blobby molten days doesn't still hang around to preserve a record of those days. Right. So we're just going to have to try and model our way all the way back to the past as we live in the now. And it's so frustrating, but this is why we do science, to try and figure these things out. Now, we have been going for 45 minutes or so, and this has been tremendous. And I could keep you here, but I'm sure that you have science you need to go off and be doing. So Mm -hmm. do you have any parting words, anything that you really just want to make sure everyone here understands about what we're learning? Learning today about Mars? I think for me, the exciting thing for Mars, you know, from a Mars perspective, is just this idea that you could have had a magnetic field present when there was a different atmosphere. For me, just as a scientist and a, and a person who's involved in education, uh, the thing I, I think is the take home point is just never ignore that little thing that you see that makes you say, that's really weird. I wonder why that's there because it might have a story. And, and I just love how this story rests on one postdoc finding one crater in one particularly magnetized volcanic lava flow. It's, it's a fabulous story. Now, if people want to follow your work, are there any particular missions or places they should be looking? Yes, I've worked. I worked for uh, several years on the Messenger mission to Mercury. So lots of lots and lots of fun stuff. I, I I'm still a big fan of. I call it the little hot one. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, so the Messenger mission, a really amazing mission. That the Bepi Colombo mission, of course, is on its way to Mercury. Twenty twenty seven. Twenty twenty five. 2027. That's right. right. Yeah. Well, it depends whether you count flybys or arrival, but it's a little ways away. Um, but, uh, but yes, the Bepi Colombo mission, which will be amazing. Um, lots of good thoughts and plans for future missions to Mercury. And then uh, I'm also involved in the OSIRIS-REx mission to Bennu. I I think we have a collective, we hate rocks due to that little world. (laughs) And I'm glad that you're here to love it with us. Um, And and this is just a reminder that planetary science is the long game. Uh, Bepi Colombo was named in 1999. That's 28 years from naming to orbiting. And we play the long game because, well... Our long game is still really short in the time span of the universe. This this has been awesome. Can we bring you back next time you have sure, new findings? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. And we will invite you back. Thank you all for listening. Today's script was written by me, Dr. Pamela Gay. Our audio will be engineered by Ali Pilfrey and the video by Tim Hawkins. Our web content is produced by Beth Johnson. All of us are supported by a myriad of volunteers. Thank you, all of you, for everything you do. The Daily Space is a product of the Planetary Science Institute, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to exploring our solar system and beyond. 
We are here thanks to the generous contributions of people like you. The best way you can support us is through patreon.com slash cosmoquestac. Like us? Please share us. You never know whose life you can change by adding a daily dose of science. Days of Astronomy podcast. Cool. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye. Thank you.